This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. To Evidence for Faith, where we give you the evidence to show that Christianity is true. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, and I'm Kirk Hastings. You can check us out at our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can also subscribe to podcasts on iTunes. Well, Kirk, we're going to be continuing the topic that we've been generally discussing about critical thinking skills. And we're focusing in on the reasons why people believe or don't believe different arguments, different things. And we're looking at a specific reason why people accept or don't accept certain arguments, certain truths called cognitive dissonance. So we'll get into that in a minute. But we've got a few news items to cover. And we want to do a special shout out to our new listeners W-Y-Y-C in York, PA, who are listening to a repeat of this show on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. So, welcome, everybody. Oh, that's neat. I used to live there for a few years in the early 70s. Okay. Do you remember that radio station, W-Y-Y-C? Yes, I do. Cool. Cool. Very good. Well, you are back there. (laughs) Now, at least your voice is. (laughs) That's neat. Yeah, isn't that cool? We're... We're getting a few more stations added on, so we'll be announcing those every week or so. Terrific. All right, let's see. News items. Kirk, you saw this article about the hydrothermal vents and the origin of life? Yes, these, this is a couple of interesting articles you have here. Yeah, this is something that we've been hearing for a few years. The origin of life scientists have really been at a loss to explain how life could have started. And the little pond, the mucky pond somewhere, thesis just isn't working. So lately, I guess, according to this article, it's been since the 1970s when geologists discovered hydrothermal vents. Okay, now hydrothermal vents, what are those? Those are holes in the ocean floor that spew out scalding hot water. They subsequently learned that these what appear to be inhospitable places because of the incredibly hot water and the high pressure being at the bottom of the ocean floor, permit the existence of primitive life forms. So some scientists have begun to believe that these conditions might be the ones that led to the beginning of life. So not some warm little pond that that Darwin thought. A warm little vent in the ocean, huh? Yeah, exactly. A really, really hot vent. (laughs) So there was an article in the journal Smithsonian in October 2010 that was published by mineralogist or published by Smithsonian but but uh, written by mineralogist Bob Hazen and his colleagues at the Carnegie Institute for Science in Washington DC and what they were trying to do was seeing if they could create some of the building blocks of life. So we've seen these kinds of experiments before and it really amounts to a scientific confirmation for the theory of intelligent design because what they're doing is seeing can we create, can we using our intelligence create 
something that can be used to build life out of. Right. Well, the, the one question that I had in reading this article, it, like you said, it points out that they discovered these vents in the 1970s. Yeah. Have they that have they then been working for like over forty years now on this idea that life started there, or did they just recently get that idea? Well, they recently they discovered that there was life there. So there are forms of life that live there near these vents. So even though they're so hot and the pressure is so high, right. so then the idea o- occurred to them that maybe some of the building blocks. There's a substance called pyruvate that's there naturally, and they thought that maybe they could create some amino acids. So this has been fairly recent, though, past several years that they've been saying that they think that they can create amino acids. And this is one of the experiments that they did that they tried to create amino acids. But Right, because I don't remember hearing this stuff before like a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, it's not since the discovery of hydrothermal vents. It's been since the discovery that there is actually life down there. Okay. So, And these are, like, really deep in the ocean, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, high pressure and very high temperatures. Right. Which basically destroy anything that is not living and able to shield itself from the heat and pressure. Well, so, what I want to know is, how come uh, they never discovered this stuff on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea than on TV? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good Just question. kidding there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, other than pointing out that, yes, if you try, you can create some building blocks, but it really doesn't explain much. It's amazing how much this doesn't explain. If you think of, say, a brick as being a building block for building a house. Right. It's not that they were able to create a brick. Say, Let's say the brick is a protein. Right. Because protein is what all the different parts are made out of. So a brick would be building the walls and, you know, of the house. What they're actually talking about is that they were able to create some amino acids. So the amino acids are the building block of the building block, if you will. So it's like saying we created some grains of sand, and so now we know how houses are built. Okay, or they discovered red clay that they make bricks with. Exactly. And of course, how many bricks are there in a typical house? Right. That's so, right. So, and the question and, is, how did all these pieces come together then to create life? It's it's like one piece of one brick would have to find another piece of another brick in the house in order to even begin to make this practical. Is exactly. That right? Yep, and several studies have been done to see how long it would take a living organism, you know, to create a new type of protein, and it's beyond the lifespan of the entire universe. You're talking, (laughs) you know, more than 20 billion years. So, we just, it's just incredible that they think that this is somehow leading them towards a discovery of the origin of life. So in the end, this really doesn't put them any closer than the warm little pond did because mathematicians have been um, counting the odds for years of, you know, how likely it was that all the right things would come together in the warm little pond in the right way to form life. And, you know, those statistics are like off the chart, too. Exactly. But yet they are not accepted. I wonder what kind of cognitive dissonance could be going on with those scientists. Well, we'll get into that a little more. Gee, Let's we couldn't be our... talking about a bias toward Darwinism, could we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's another study that we have. This is reported in CNS News 
and it's about a Russian Academy of Sciences that published details of research directed by sedimentologist Guy Bertholdt, showing that sedimentary rocks form very rapidly, two thousandths of the time attributed to them by the geological time scale. Yeah, I find this one really interesting. Yeah, this is this is pretty interesting. I've I'm familiar with this fellow's work because he's published other things in the past. He did the flume experiments that were done in the United States that showed that lata, strata are laid down simultaneously and not one on top of the other. Right. So this relates to that in that what they did was showed that they were able to time the formation, a geological formation, and show how long it took to form, and it was, it was very, very rapidly. So this article says that the, the work of Dr. Bertal spans a period of 30 years and was first performed in France at the Marseille Institute of Fluid Mechanics and subsequently at the Colorado State University Hydraulics Laboratory in the United States. And I've seen the videotapes of the experiments there, and it's really very impressive. Its application in the field was tested on the Cambrian Ordovician sandstones of the Northwest Russian platform by a team of Russian sedimentologists. And their report is published in Lithology and Mineral Resources, a journal of the Russian Academy of Sciences. Details can be found at www.sedimentology.fr for France. So that is Dr. Bertolt's site. Okay. So this article says, this is not just a compelling model, but the result of laboratory experiments whose peer-reviewed reports have been published by academies of sciences. The experiments have been tested in the field and hold true in every case. They show that rocks formed of sediments laid down by moving currents of water do not take millions of years to form, and the fossils in them are not, therefore, millions of years old. Two-thirds of the Earth's rocks are formed of sedimentary deposits. The empirical proof that rocks can and do form rapidly is unassailable. The experiments can be observed and repeated in any university laboratory. They show that rock strata do not form one upon the other in succession, but laterally and vertically at the same time. This fact in itself falsifies the basic principle of superstition or superposition Right. Upon which the entire geologic timescale was constructed. So those timescale things that you see in, in textbooks and stuff where it shows the oldest strata on the bottom and then the different layers that go up to the current strata are really not accurate. Is that That's what right. this is saying? That's right. They're, they're formed by floodwaters flowing and the different sizes of the grains of the sediment will layer out. So the reason there are layers is because those are different sizes of grains. So this and, is really major stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the, you know, the 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 time the time scale drawings that I've seen, they, some of them even have like in one strata they'll have pictures of trilobites, and then the next one they'll have little you know dinosaur bones, and the next one they'll have mammal bones, and it's like this is uh, they say that this shows the entire history of what happened in the Earth. But these experiments right. are saying that that whole scale is wrong. Correct. Yep, that's what it's showing. It's also been shown in phenomena that are happening today in river deltas. When rivers pump out sediments into a bay, they will layer out 
so that so that it's not one layer and then the next year it's another layer and then the next year it's another there will be multiple layers that are formed simultaneously that proceed and go out towards the ocean so this has all been not only proven in flume studies with mixing up your own batch of sediments and water and flowing down flumes, but it's also been observed to be happening concurrently in nature. And now they've taken it to a specific site in Russia to examine the sandstones there and determine how they were formed. Very exciting evidence out there. So this is really saying, this is really adding a lot of proof to the idea of Noah's flood then, that these sediments were all layered fairly quickly because of a a major flood. Well, it at least adds evidence for catastrophism. At least we know that there are massive areas of sediment that were laid down simultaneously by a flood. Right. So whether that was Noah's flood or part of a flood or before Noah's flood or after Noah's flood, you know, that's to be determined. But That's pretty amazing. I mean, when are we going to hear this on the nightly news? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, should I be holding my breath? (laughs) Right. When have you ever heard about any kind of experimentation in sedimentology? Only only when you're watching a show about how evolution happened on PBS or something. But they don't talk about experiments. They just tell you. They show you, here is how the sediments formed, and they give you a little animation. Right. But they never, ever tell you about experiments that were done that showed how this happened. They speculate. Yeah, exactly. Well, if evolution happened, this must be the way it happened then. It all goes back to Lyle in his Principles of Geology. And I was looking, I was reading from Darwin's The Voyage of the Beagle last night. And in the introduction to The Voyage of the Beagle, he, what do they call it, donates, not donates the book, but... um, um, Dedicates it? Yeah, dedicates the book to Lyle. And he says how because of the, the book... Principles in Geology completely influenced all his writings, he said. And is Lyle the one that came up with the geological timescale? Yeah, he's the one that came up with the idea of the superposition. Right. That something is lower down, then it must be older. Right. And so he was the one that first said that, yeah, these we're talking millions of years in between the layers. Wow. So This is really incredible. <laughs> Yep, it is. It's been great to see this develop too. I'd wondered what had happened to him. He did he did those flume experiments maybe twenty years ago and Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't figure this out sooner, actually. Yeah. Um I guess because the results you get aren't what they thought, right? So nobody wants to listen to it. It's more cognitive dissonance. Right. Which happens to tie in with today's program. It does indeed. Well, before we get to today's program though, let we did receive some communication with a, I think he's an atheist, I'm not sure. At least he had a, a good question. This is from Michael, and he asked, why would God create evil? Okay, and he specifically talks about, rather than read his, his uh, message, I'll just say, he talks about how God knew that Satan would betray him, and so since God knew Satan was going to do it, that he... In- intentionally did it. God intentionally did it. It's it's just as if he says, he gives the example of kicking a soccer ball. You know, if I kick a soccer ball knowing that it's going to hit you in the face and break your nose, then I'm responsible. But you don't really know that when you kick it, do you? No. How could you know that? For God, God would know, right? God would know what... Yeah, that's true. So, but of course, 
Satan is not like a soccer ball. So no, because uh, a soccer ball doesn't make choices, but Satan Satan did. Right, and we do. Mm-hmm. So I answered him. First, we have to clear away two errors that are embedded in the question that affect it and affect any possible answer. The first is the premise that God created evil. But as Augustine showed and C.S. Lewis explained, evil's not actually something in itself. It's only the absence of good or a distortion of it. It's like darkness is the absence of light. Ooh, it's you're not really from, It's yeah, not really a thing in itself. That was my next sentence. And cold yes. is the absence of heat. <laughs> exactly right. It's like darkness. It's like cold. Right. So it's the same so God is the sunum bonum, right? The greatest good. Right. He cannot create evil any more than he can create a square circle. Right. But something else can block or distort the goodness and create evil. So I give the example of, you know, after God created light, the only way there could be darkness is for something to block the light and create a shadow. But right. before God created the light, did God create darkness? Nope. No. Was, there was darkness before there was light, right? Yeah. Right, because darkness isn't anything. It's the absence of something. Right. And so, that's what evil is. So, yeah, and that's you a really interesting this. way of looking at it. Yeah, it, exactly. It kind of yes, changes your whole perspective when you look at it that way. Right. Because people tend evil, to think yeah. of evil as a thing. Right. So, the, And God created it. So, right. how can that be? But really, in a way, you could say that evil is the absence of God. Since God yes. is the absolute good, and if God isn't operating somewhere, then you end up with evil. Exactly right. Exactly right. Right. And you can see this when you think about why people do evil things, right? They're really trying to distort goodness. Why do people steal, right? It's a way for somebody to get something which they think is good, or they think it's going to do them good. Right? right, they're stealing money because they need money to buy food or to live in a house. You know, good things. But what they're doing is distorting goodness by going about getting it in the wrong way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just reading something yesterday about um, uh, villains in literature, and the article was talking about how the best villains in literature are the ones who don't think they're villains; they think right. they're heroes. They yeah, think absolutely. they're doing the right thing or they're doing something for the right purpose, but they're actually not. And, and, that's, and that's what why, makes them a villain. <laughs> right. And that's why everyone has to be careful. When you think you're doing something right, but you wind up harming others, you better think again. Right. You have to be aware of these concepts. You have to know what goodness is. You have to know the author of goodness if you want to really know uh, goodness and truth. Right. So, the second error that he makes that's implied is the remark about God knowing that Satan would fall. It's that knowledge that he's assuming that knowledge is causation, okay? Just because God knew that Satan would create evil doesn't mean that he caused him to do it. Any right. more than if I knew which horse was going to win the Kentucky Derby, does that mean that I caused that horse to win? No. So, God knew that Satan was going to betray him, but... It doesn't mean that he made him. That's kind of getting a, a little into the idea of predestination. A yeah. lot of people will say, well, you know, we can't help what we do because God knows ahead of time what we're going to do, and we therefore we can't change it. But they make the same mistake right. of assuming that just because God knows something is going to happen doesn't mean he's caused it to happen. 
That's right. Especially when we realize that he created free will beings to act like him, to be free like him, to be creative and to be good like him. So he allows us to, we're like his change agents, right? So it's like a, a general in charge of soldiers in a war. You know, if a soldier does something wrong, is that the general's fault? Or did, let's put it this way, did the general do it? No, his soldier did it. Right. So. And probably disobeyed orders to do it. Yep. So then I get to the heart of the question, which is, why would God allow evil? So the answer is that God wanted something better than could exist without evil. He's making creatures that can really understand how good and loving he is because they really understand how terrible and wicked evil really is. And because we're not puppets. Right. Because we're not puppets or little wind-up toys that do what he tells us to do. But it's, it's more than that. It's more than just that we're free. It's that we're free and we truly know God, and we're free and we truly choose goodness. Right. So he wants creatures like him who freely love him and freely choose goodness. He's using a process, just like many artists do to, say, make clay pots, right? They make them in the shape they want, and then they paint on these colors. But to get the final product, what they really want, the pots have to be fired in an oven of incredible heat that makes them into the final product. Right. Even though some are lost in the process, some of those pots don't survive this process. Right. They Why? break in the oven. That's right. Why does the artist do it then? To get because the good the, pots. <laughs> that's right. To get the finished product. Yep. So the purpose of the universe, I say continuing on answering Michael here, is the purpose of the universe is to make more sons of God who will enter into the fellowship of the Trinity and they will really know how loving he is because they will know that he freely died to save them from real evil that is ever only a choice away. If you do not yet know how evil the evil that is inside you really is, then you cannot know how good God really is. Only his goodness can cleanse away that evil, just as pure light destroys darkness. Right. Wow. Cool. Michael. Yeah, isn't that cool to look forward to living in relationship with a a purely good and perfect God? That's amazing stuff to realize that. Isn't it? Yeah. It is. It's it's called, in theology, it's called the, oh, if I can remember it, the mystical union. The mystical union that the Bible talks about. Or the perfection of the saints, maybe? It is. Yes, indeed. He's in the process of perfecting us. Absolutely. And you have to have some imperfection in there to realize the perfection in the end. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Think about it. You know, imagine if you are Adam and Eve— and you haven't fallen yet, and God is walking around with you in the garden looking at some of the interesting animals and plants that he's created, and, and God says to you, I want, I want to tell you a little bit about me. I'm really a humble God, <laughs> right? What's, Adam's right. going to go, yeah, right. Yeah, tell right. That's funny. <laughs> Who is this really? <laughs> uh-huh. Like Bill Cosby used to say. That's right. <laughs> But what God did was came and died for us, came and shed his blood on the cross and was humiliated. He humbled himself and showed how truly humble 
God is in a way that we could never, ever have understood. Right, and it's because of all that evil that happened to him that he was able to show that. Because exactly. of the fact that they tortured him and crucified him and spit on him and everything else. Yep, yep. And yet he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right. So he was humble, he was forgiving, and he revealed himself to us in a way that he never could have done by creating us and just kind of explaining things to us. Right. We just simply would never really have understood it. Right. Wow. Well, heavy last stuff. week... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just saying, that's heavy stuff. Heavy stuff, indeed. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the topic of the day. We finished off last week talking about cognitive dissonance. So, for those that are just joining us, what the heck is cognitive dissonance? <laughs> well, it's this this angst, okay, this feeling, this uncomfortableness that you get when you have two competing beliefs. And one of them, it's especially strong if one of them is a feeling that deals with your self-concept. Right. So, and it, it explains a lot of human behavior. It explains things like why when you do a study of all of the drivers in, you, in, in the U.S. and you ask them, are they below average, average, or above average? Why do 85, 90% of people say they're above average? <laughs> because so, they think they're above average drivers. That's right. Everything they see, all their beliefs that they see that conflict with their self-concept, they reject. And right. the beliefs that go along with their self-concept, they, they agree with that. Well, we're really talking about bias and prejudice here. Right. It's You're got prejudice all kinds toward of an idea that benefits your self-image. That's right. It's rationalization. It's all kinds of things. And we talked about quite a few of the examples of, of things. Right. It's one of the things that I know that it is in when I have it is why I don't play golf. Right? If, if I don't play golf, then I don't have the feeling of, gee, what a lousy golfer I am. <laughs> So that must explain why I've never played golf in my life, <laughs> except for miniature we, golf. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, it's kind of just normal behavior, and we all know about it. Sure. But it does explain a lot of things. Uh, another thing that it can explain is why people who are, what shall we say, not lower class, but maybe less educated, who can't have difficulty finding good jobs, let's put it that way. Why are they more likely to believe in conspiracies about the government and about how the rich are keeping the poor down? Because that Those explains why they haven't gotten rich. Exactly. They think. Yep. <laughs> See, it, it can't be that, well, I'm just, you know, I, I only graduated from the ninth grade. That can't be it. Or it can't be that I'm just lazy and don't want to put the work into it. Right. There could be a, a dozen different reasons. But what it does is it it makes me feel better. So I don't have to think about the, you know, the fact that, hey, I, you know, I'm not making a good living, I can't support my family or whatever. Right. And what I do is I say, oh, you know what? There's a reason. There's a conspiracy going on and it's crushing the little guy <laughs> and it's keeping us down. It's all and those so, evil rich people that are keeping us down. Exactly. <laughs> and so, the, what the, so what this really is, is it's really cognitive dissonance. So we have to be very careful that we don't succumb to these kinds of things. Okay. I was, I was reading a couple nights ago. I was reading something. I came across. This was an account of the plague epidemic that hit Milan in 1630, and 
it talks about the problem that the people had accepting the fact the people of Milan didn't want to believe that the plague had struck them. So they went through all kinds of, you know, exaggerated um, conspiracies and things to that what was really happening, what it really was. It was, you know, some other kind of, it was just the bad flu, you know, all this stuff. Rationalizations. Rationalizations. So let me just, I thought I'd read a little bit of this. This is from Alessandro Manzani, and it's from his famous work called I Promisi Sposi. And he's talking about the plague in Milan. And he says, They who had so resolutely and perseveringly impugned the existence of a germ of evil near them or among them, which might propagate itself by natural means and make much havoc, unable now to deny its propagation, they finally, what would happen is the Board of Health basically would stack up dead bodies of, you know, and they would strip them naked so that everybody could see the blotches on their skin, put them on a cart, and they would cart them through town to prove to everybody that the plague really was there. <laughs> uh, unable now to deny its propagation and unwilling to attribute it to those means, for this would have been to confess at once a great delusion and a great error. See, they didn't want to admit that, that they'd made a terrible mistake. Right. So they were so much the more inclined to find some other cause for it and to make good any that might happen to present itself. Unhappily, there was one in readiness in the ideas and traditions common at that time, not only here but in every part of Europe, of magical arts, diabolical practices, people sworn to disseminate the plague by means of contagious poisons and witchcraft. Uh-huh. So it wasn't so, a disease, it was people practicing witchcraft that was causing this. Exactly. Yep, and he tells, he gives an example of a woman who was looking out her window and she saw a clerk walking along, and as he was walking along, he was touching the side of a building and just kind of dragging his hand along the way somebody might do as they're walking past. Right. She accused him of spreading contagion, that he had, was deliberately spreading some kind of unctuous ointment. He must have been a wizard or something. <laughs> exactly. So what did what did the magistrates do? Oh my they gosh. grabbed him and they tortured a confession out of him. So yeah. So he of course then figured out what was going on and blamed somebody else. He was only acting under the orders of another person. Well, they grabbed <laughs> that person and tortured a confession out of him. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, really, really sad. But that's all an example of cognitive dissonance. Now, that explains about three quarters of our history as as a race, doesn't it? It does. That kind of thing does. happening? Yeah. Man. But here's an example, right in this story, is, is an example of people without cognitive dissonance. And it's just an amazing story about how the truth of Christianity impacts people's lives and makes it better. What he does is he describes, this author, Alessandro Manzani, describes how the friars came into the town and took over the hospital because all the doctors and everyone had left and abandoned the people to the hospitals. Right. So he says, um, the spirit, the deeds, the self-sacrifice of these friars deserve no less than that they should be mentioned with respect and tenderness and with that species of gratitude which one feels en masse, as it were, for great services rendered by men to their fellows, to die in a good cause is a wise and beautiful action at any time 
under any state of things whatsoever because, of course, many of the friars did die in caring for these people right. in the hospital. Right. And he quotes then from a, a historian by the name of Tadino, and he, he says, quote, For had not ye fathers repaired hither, assuredly ye whole city would have been annihilated, for it was a miraculous thing that ye fathers affected so much for ye public benefit in so short a space of time, and received no assistance, or at least very little from ye city, contrived by their industry and prudence to maintain so many thousands of poor in ye hospital. That's a uh, just a testimony to the kind of good that Christianity has wrought in the world. Hmm. Well, back to our concept of cognitive dissonance. What else? What other kinds of examples do we have for cognitive dissonance? Well, Kirk, do you remember about a year ago we did a show where we explained a study that they did on about morals and environmentalists? Do you remember that study? Yes. Yeah, pretty interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> they... They decided they were they wanted to measure people's moral responses in different situations, and their their original theory was that environmentalists, because they care so much about the earth, would have a higher level of morals. Okay, so they they divided people based on transportation. Were they did they use green sources of transportation on statements about environmentalism and practices such as recycling, and so they, they divided their group of people in half, and they took the environmentalists, and then what they did is they gave them, they put them in situations where they had the opportunity to be kind or not be kind, to lie or tell the truth, or to steal, and guess what the results were? I know. <laughs> yeah, you do. Not what you would expect. Well, the environmentalists were much more likely to be unkind, much more likely, like three times more likely to lie, and six times more likely to steal. Hmm. So, how does this fit into cognitive dissonance? Well, you can see, you can imagine it a couple of ways, actually. You can imagine somebody who is a liar and a thief who doesn't want to think bad things about himself. So, what does he do? He finds he says, a cause, like environmentalism, uh, to make him look better. Exactly, to make him feel better, to make himself feel better. I'm not really a bad person. Right. Look at what I do. I recycle. Right. I can't imagine it much the <laughs> other way around. I can't imagine it that I'm an environmentalist and it makes me feel better to steal. Mm, yeah, the cognitive dissonance doesn't seem to work that way, but it does seem to work the other way. Yeah, I would well, say so. Well, another example then. How about Pilate washing his hands? Yeah, that's a good had, one. Yeah, when he had condemned Jesus. You can imagine he interviewed Jesus. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that the Pharisees and Sadducees are a conniving bunch of uh, politicians. Right. But now he's going to be responsible for this person. And he's even his wife has even warned him that, he had, that she had a bad dream about it and not to have anything to do with this innocent man. Right. So, what can he do? Nothing. He's stuck. Except maybe he can push the guilt onto somebody else. Right. So he, he knows if he lets the guy go, there's going to be a riot. Right. So, he can't do that. So, he believes, he's, he believes that he himself is a good person, wouldn't put an innocent man to death. 
but he also believes that Jesus is innocent and he has to put him to death. So you can imagine the cognitive dissonance. So he publicly washes his hands right. as a way of psychologically, he's washing his hands. He's, you know, saying, he, I'm a clean person. I'm clean of this guilt. He's putting and the blame on the crowd that are calling for Jesus's death that's instead right. of exercising his own authority to let the guy go, which is what yep. he should have done. Yep. If he believed the guy was innocent, he should have just let him go. Absolutely. That would be like a judge, you know, listening to 